Remember, remember the 5th of November, the gunpowder, treason, and plot. I know of no reason why the gunpowder treason should ever be forgot. Welcome to Now Playing's DC Comics Hitmen Retrospective Series. There are only murderers in this room. Continuing our look at movies based on DC Comics characters, Arnie, Stuart, and Jacob will be reviewing the film adaptations of Road to Perdition. This is the life we chose, the life we lead. And there is only one guarantee. None of us will see heaven. A history of violence. You got anything to say before I blow your brains out, you miserable prick? V for Vendetta. Are you like a crazy person? I'm quite sure they will say so. The Losers. I am a lethal killing machine. It was a secret government experiment. It did stuff to me. Spooky stuff. Red and Red 2. Eh, they don't make them like that anymore. These podcasts will contain detailed plot spoilers and harsh language. Because it's all so fucking hysterical. Listener discretion is advised. Okay, Billy. Let's show this asshole we mean business. Today we're discussing Red 2, starring Bruce Willis, John Malkovich, Mary Louise Parker, Catherine Zeta-Jones, Anthony Hopkins, and Helen Mirren, and directed by Dean Pariseau. This is Arnie, the co-host of Now Playing, who knows only one thing, women and podcasting. Stuart in LA. Hey, and this is Jacob, and I haven't killed anyone in a couple of months. Itching to? Maybe after this review, let's see. You know, if you would have told me the beginning of the year that I was going to watch two films about Bruce Willis teaming up with Storm Shadow to stop a terrorist plot in London, I would have asked to have whatever you were smoking. I can't believe I'm here again doing this plot, doing these characters. We've already done this, right, Arnie? Yeah, it kind of seems that way. The similarities between Red 2 and G.I. Joe 2 are astounding, but this just goes to show Bruce Willis has been in a lot of movies this year. Yes, but this one's supposed to be funny bad, right? We will discuss it, but yes, we are here with Red 2. It's the last of our DC hitmen. The only DC hitman to get a sequel is Red. Which is odd. I mean, the first movie was barely based on the comic anyway. They had this Frank Moses character that was similar, and then they pretty much did their own thing. So, again, I said it last week. Here I am again. I'm shocked that there's a Red 2. I don't know where they got the idea of, hey, let's do Red 2. Out of all the things we could do, this is the one that's going to make us some money. This is weird. I just get that vibe. It has a whole different feel to its universe and to its adaptive properties than Marvel did. And of course, that's because Marvel was much more forward thinking and maybe better with their licenses. Well, let's not forget, this isn't a DC picture. This is Summit Entertainment. Everybody at DC said no. Although they get a little logo in here. I mean, they didn't want to fund it when it was a concept about old people, but they're here when I see the movie beginning. It is DC, believe me. That's why we're doing it. It's a DC movie. We'd have to do it anyway, and we're doing it now because it's been out in theaters. Although, is anyone seeing it? Is it still out in theaters by this point? (laughs) Yeah, right. We are delayed. It is, in fact, because we had so many things to fit into July. We're now into August getting to this movie. It's been out a couple weeks now. It's probably been gone a couple weeks now. (laughs) And 
And I blame the studio for this. We had this perfectly slotted. You would be hearing this weekend of release, but somebody at Summit or DC or wherever said, hey, no, this is a perfect July picture. Let's release it the weekend of Comic-Con. And I thought for sure, for sure, this would be a huge Comic-Con tie-in. Like you said, it is DC. It is Bruce Willis. Comic-Con loves both of them. I thought that I'd be coming to this podcast telling you guys this story about how I went to the screening and Dean Pariseau would be there and I would have watched it with Malkovich and Zeta Jones. No, nothing. I don't know why they moved it, if not for Comic-Con, but nothing. But I actually think this is just a bone thrown to our UK listeners. For over a year, I've been getting emails from UK listeners. Why aren't you reviewing the Avengers? Why aren't you reviewing Prometheus? Because for over a year, big movies had been opening in the UK and Australia and overseas weeks before they opened here in the States. Well, I just returned from London, and if you're in the UK, this is weekend of release for you. For once, a movie opened in the US a few weeks before the UK. So our US listeners are now experiencing what our UK listeners have had to deal with for so many other movies where the movie takes a couple of weeks to release. And so the podcast comes out a couple weeks after the movie. And hell, I went to Paris. Red 2 doesn't open there until the 28th. But yeah, here in the States, supposed to be August, moved to July? That doesn't make sense to me. I have a theory on this. I actually think they wanted revenge on the original director. The original director of Red 2 did not come back for this film. He made R.I.P.D. instead. So they said, damn him, we're going to screw him over and we're going to beat him in the box office. We're not going to win the weekend. That's going to go to Conjuring and everything else. But we are going to beat the damn Ryan Reynolds Men in Black ripoff. Or Ryan Reynolds. It's a different conversation for a different time. But if that is the plan, it worked. It sure did. That's my theory on it. Anyway, otherwise, yeah, why do this? Why put it out in the heat of summer? A movie about old people is not traditionally a time for summer. It isn't. This should have been in fall or spring or at least August. It makes no sense competing with the big boys here. It's not that kind of movie, but I don't know what they thought. I guess it tested well. What I had heard about this movie was they were very happy with audience responses and that they were even developing a Red 3 even before this movie opened. And they thought they've created a franchise that's bigger than the DC property that started it. I do got to say, it got the old people to the theater. I don't want to sound ageist or anything, but the screening I went to, I went a Saturday morning, and I think I was the youngest person there. You know, when that last Vegas trailer came up, that theater was <laughs> rolling. <laughs> It wasn't just you, Jacob. I, because of Comic-Con, actually saw this at a 10.30 a.m. Monday showing, and I imagine I probably looked pretty unemployed. I'm fairly haggard after a rough Comic-Con, but... When the movie was done, I was middle of the theater. I was the first one out the door as I didn't have to arrange my mode of transport as there were a number <laughs> of walkers and rascals around. And you know what? I'm totally cool with that. The old people should have their movie. I think that's great. I didn't see it that way, but I wanted to. My whole goal when I decided to see this movie was I was going to finally see it with adults. It's this latest concept, and I've been waiting for the right film to go see it in 
LA has a new idea on how movie theaters of the future are going to be. I saw this at a 21 and older screening of a restaurant slash movie theater. You have to be an adult to come see it. And the whole idea is you are in a recliner, electrically leaning back to the film with a table in front of you and a call button. And you can order anything you want while you're watching the movie. People, I'm convinced if I'd given the usher $10, he would have carried me to my seat. It was all about (laughs) keeping the young kids and their texting and all of this out and giving a proper adult movie experience going for the cherry price of $20 a ticket plus all the food. I ended up spending $75 on Red 2, folks. I hope you liked it then. (laughs) (laughs) Yet to be discussed. But I did have a rule. Every time I felt confused or maybe unentertained or felt my enthusiasm flagging, I was going to hit that button and cheer myself up with an alcoholic beverage or a piece of jerky or something. I'll describe as we go through the movie. I'll tell you when I ordered the food. (laughs) Now, were there older people in your audience? There was no one in my audience. <laughs> it was the theater's design custom-made small. Because they're recliners, obviously there's not a lot of room. And then the waiters have to get by you. So there's only 50 seats, and I'd say half of them were full. So at $20 a pop, maybe that's still profitable. I don't know how much other people ate. I certainly threw in my share for all the people that weren't there. $75 is pretty hefty. You know, that's six other people in a regular theater. I saw it for $5, so I could have <laughs> taken 12 of my closest friends for what you <laughs> yeah, but you didn't have delicious coconut shrimp fresh from the freezer. <laughs> well, what time was your showing? It was opening day, Friday night. It was date night. I was the only one there, not with someone else. But I thought, if I'm $75, there's no way, and there's no one I know that wanted to see this movie. It's just not worth spending hundreds of dollars to have this experience. I had wanted to see it because this is such an old person movie. I felt like seeing it with an adult audience was the right choice. It was strategic. Your problem was you didn't see it with the correct audience. The people that were in my audience would have been at the 4.30 dinner show. (laughs) Yeah, I was at the 11 p.m. So I was at the very last showing of this. And even I had trouble. I got to say, it was kind of nice. I was a little bit cynical. I certainly was begrudging the price. It was kind of nice to kick back and have people bring you things. And like I said, when you're not enjoying it, you make something happen. You punch a button and you cheer yourself up. That sounds like a Pavlovian monkey drug experiment. (laughs) (laughs) But I will say this. There is a design flaw in all of this. When you are reclined completely, when you are basically lying in a bed with a table in front of you of dipping sauces and alcoholic beverage, It does not all get into your mouth. And I really, by the end of it, I was glad I didn't go to this movie with anyone else because I would have been ashamed of the way I looked when the lights came up. They got to work on that. I need a bib or something. I don't know what. Or maybe a big straw for the dipping sauce. But it was a very messy experience to try and eat that way. Well, let's see if you could swallow the movie. I'm really looking forward for you explaining the plot. I know I messed up here, and maybe I'll blame it on the alcohol. Arnie, do you got it? Give us the rundown on Red 2. Former CIA agent Frank, played by Bruce Willis, and his girlfriend Sarah, Mary Louise Parker also returning, are still together, but Sarah is exceptionally bored with their relationship. When she met Frank, it was in the middle of a big adventure, after which he took her to a military job in Moldova. But now Frank wants to settle down. His biggest fear is that someone will hurt or kill Sarah, so he leads an overprotective life in suburbia, refusing to engage in any risking activity, such as eating out where someone could poison 
poison their food, like Stuart did. See, Stuart, Frank and Sarah would not be going to that theater. But crazy friend Marvin, John Malkovich, shows up to ruin their tranquility. WikiLeaks posted a document about a covert operation called Nightshade, and Frank and Marvin are explicitly named. This leak has upset the U.S. government as well, and Agent Jack Horton is given carte blanche to torture, maim, kill, do whatever's necessary to keep more information about Nightshade from going public. When Horton's regular squad is handily taken out by Frank, Horton hires a Korean contract killer, Han, to take out Frank. Something Han is only too happy to do as Frank sabotaged Han's upcoming spy career. MI6 is equally anxious to cover up Nightshade, so they call their former agent Victoria, played by Helen Mirren, to take out her former friends and colleagues. So Frank and Marvin travel the world to find out about Operation Nightshade, and while Frank wants Sarah to hide in the safe house, Sarah is finally getting the actions she craved. While Frank tries to keep her out of it, Marvin realizes Sarah needs this excitement in their relationship and urges Frank to give her a gun. Things become more strained when a Russian agent arrives, also trying to find Nightshade. The agent is Katya, played by Catherine Zeta-Jones, and she and Frank have a long romantic history. She's able to seduce him for what she wants to the point that Marvin calls Katya Frank's kryptonite. But the plot revealed is that Nightshade is a bomb, and it was taken piece by piece in diplomatic vouchers and hidden under the Kremlin. It's a bomb that uses red mercury to explode. It has the damage of a nuclear missile, but it doesn't have any radiation. It won't have the fallout, and it can't be detected with Geiger counters. Only one man knows exactly where this bomb is, and that's the bomb's creator, Dr. Edward Bailey, played by Anthony Hopkins. Bailey was put into an insane asylum and drugged to lose his memory, so Frank and the group break him out. But it turns out the plot was Bailey's all along. He wanted to see his bomb explode, so MI6 locked him away. In revenge for 35 years of incarceration, Bailey plotted to get the bomb and use it to blow up London. He planted the info on WikiLeaks himself, expecting to get broken out. Frank convinces Han to join forces so that they can save 11 million lives, and this new AARP team head to London where they steal the bomb and plant it on Bailey's plane as he attempts to fly to freedom. And with that plot stopped, Frank realizes how instrumental Sarah was in the mission, so Frank, Marvin, and Sarah continue their adventures as credits roll. So that is the plot, and like you said, Stuart, this one feels a lot more like a comic book movie than the last one. Down to the opening credits, it starts with comic panels and a red and black motif, and I thought it was very cool opening credits. It's something they repeat throughout the rest of the film to lesser effect, but here I like the opening. It feels more comic book than most of these DC hitmen. It was a flourish. I definitely didn't feel like it did much for telling the story. I did find it weird that the illustration, the animation of Bruce Willis's character, I mean, it was straight from the original comic. It doesn't look like Willis at all. I did think it was kind of weird. I guess they're both bald. Seemed like a bit of a disconnect. Like, if you're watching this, who is that character? Is that supposed to be Willis? I don't know. I miss the postcard transitions. They do this red and black animated thing. I like the postcards from the last film. I thought that would have worked here, too, being more international. Yeah, this definitely is more international, and there is a lot of travel, just like the last one. Stuart, you said that frustrated you with the losers and the last red film. Here it is again. Well, no, just to clarify, what I said is it is a cliche of scripts that are lying around Hollywood. Many, many, many scripts have stories in which every scene takes place in a different location, which can be very hard to read and very tiring and just not that cool. And I think it really sucked in The Losers. It was much more organic and fun in Red. I didn't ding Red for that, but I think they did have to up the stakes, and I'm glad to see that they had more money this time to go international. One of the few real 
things to be positive about here, coming back to this, is the fact that, yeah, we're going to see Paris. We're going to see Russia. That might actually be Vancouver, but we're going to see something called <laughs> Russia, and we're going to see different countries. We're going to see the places where these spies committed their original crimes. London. I think all of that is a really cool idea that makes this concept more fresh. Now, I was the one that liked Red last time. I think I was the only one that gave it a green arrow, but I also got to say, this is something I never want to do. And let me just put this bias out there right now. Sequels to comedies are a terrible, terrible idea. I racked my brain trying to think of how many are very successful. I don't think that more than any other genre, comedy works well when you make it formulaic. When you try to take the things that were uniquely funny about a premise, like, say, The Hangover, and then do it all over again in Thailand two years later. I mean, I just don't think that comedy translates as well as action movies or horror movies or anything else as far as making sequels. It's a bad idea, right? And admittedly, this bias came from me watching Mannequin 2 and Weekend at Bernie's 2 and Look Who's Talking Now. Hint. But not Police Academies? Hey, don't reveal our upcoming slate of movie reviews too much. <laughs> well, if you do that, just know that it'll be against my will. I just don't like doing this. I do not like trying to review comedies in general, because I think comedy's subjective, but sequel comedies, it's a bad idea. I think Red, it's one saving grace here is that, yes, it has the international thing going, and it's always had one foot in being a spy action. So that's what I care about here, is I'm hoping that I'm swept up in the international intrigue. I don't know that they're going to be able to make me laugh that much because, quite frankly, the joke was played out by the last one. I laughed, I enjoyed it, I recommended it, but I didn't want to hear it again. Well, I think you're going a little overboard calling this a comedy. I mean, Red isn't Porky's. Red is an action comedy, and I think that there have been a number of successful action comedy sequels. How many have bested their original? It's arguable, but I would put Red in the same category that I would put the first Lethal Weapon film, or Beverly Hills Cop, or Fletch. No, 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 I see this much closer to Pink Panther, or Austin Powers, or maybe Ocean's Twelve. I do gotta say, I'm on the wrong podcast because I typically don't like franchises. They all seem forced to me, whether it's Jason or Police Academy. You're trying to take what worked really well one time and just retread that over and over and try to make it a little bit more fresh. Now, I get what you're saying, though, Stuart, with a comedy. Well, you're just going to be telling me the same jokes because those jokes got big laughs, and so that's what you're going to want to repeat. For me, what was refreshing about Red 2, and I know there was some debate with that first one, if it went too overboard with the whole old thing, the whole seniors coming back to get revenge. I felt like they kind of left that behind. I didn't feel like this was a movie about old people. If I hadn't seen that first one, I wouldn't have guessed that that's what the original Red was about. To me, they've changed the formula a bit here. It's still jokes. It's still spies going around the world, shooting people up. And they still have jokes, you know, Helen Mirren and being casual about sniping people's heads off. But they didn't go for all the same AARP jokes this time. Yeah, let me just say, that was my biggest complaint about the last film, and the reason that I was pretty anti-Red is because not only did I find the joke it had unfunny, but it just kept having that same joke again and again and again. And I'm gonna put it right out there now. This movie 
feels very different than the last one. This movie, to me, has the same characters, but they're not acting the same way. In the last one, John Malkovich is so crazy that you can't understand half the babble that's coming out of his mouth. He can't speak sentences correctly. In this one, Malkovich is much more straight, much less paranoid. They play the paranoia joke slightly in the beginning, never again. Frank is actually a paranoid one in this one. And the whole old versus young dynamic that was in the last one, that was the motif of the last one, gone. Here, we have a much more straightforward action film that could star anyone. It just happens to star people in their 50s and up. It's funny, Arnie, because I didn't have that big problem with the old versus young thing in that last film. Having watched this, with its absence of it here, I really realized how much of that there was in that original red one. And it's kind of started bugging me afterwards I saw this one. We'd seen the absence of it. It really brought it out what that first one was doing. Well, I'm glad that that's not going to be the issue here this time. I didn't want to have the same podcast discussing Red 2. I'm glad that it's worked out for you, Arnie. I think that's good, but I respectfully disagree with what you're saying. I actually think that these are the exact same jokes, the exact same characters. They feel different, not because they've done something different, but it's in different hands. The director's gone from the original. He was off making R.I.P.D. And this is the guy from Galaxy Quest. They got somebody else in who had some experience with comedy and mixing genres and try to make it work. Malkovich is still crazy here. His introductory scene in the movie is he's staging his own death in a Costco parking lot so that he can then explore why they've been set up and framed for the plot that we'll get into when we get into. He's still that wacky guy. It's just, all right, I'll go ahead and say it. It's just not as funny. It's just not as sharp. It's just not handled as well as it was last time. Actually, I'm going to say it this way. It's more grounded. It's more realistic. It's less over the top than last time. It's less grating. Malkovich last time was like carrot top to me. Just an unwatchable painful presence. Here, I don't mind him. You know, one of the reasons I think I was dreading a Red 2 is I liked those characters. I didn't recommend the film once it got into its plot, but I liked the characters. There was some kind of dread of having to watch these characters do those same acts all over again. Watching Malkovich do that all over again. I agree with you, Arnie. They are much more grounded here. Instead of being experimental on with acid this time. He's doing it to other people, forcing them to go on acid trips. They got these little jokes about this 15 cell phones taped together, but he's not as grating this time. They do feel a bit more grounded. You got Malkovich and Willis. It's almost like this buddy comedy during this first act here. Nobody does better than what they did last time. That's my personal opinion here. I liked most of the characters last time. Some of those characters I still like this time. Nobody is as good as they were last time. Malkovich is taking a hit here. I do find him much more annoying. Let me see if I'm hearing what you guys are saying. They've improved Malkovich? I'm saying if I have to sit through these characters for a second film, maybe a third one like they have planned, these are the versions I want to have to spend multiple copious hours with, not those original way, way over-the-top ones. And I disagree. I think Mary Louise Parker's character is much better written in this film. And while I don't think any of the other actors ever topped their performance from the first one, I think as a whole, I enjoy this group performance more. I will agree with Jacob 98%. I enjoy the group dynamic more. A couple of characters I liked last time were a little bit minimalized this time. But overall, across the board, I think everybody's settled into it a little bit better, with one exception, and that's Willis. Willis. 
Willis seems to be kind of walking through this one, but Malkovich, Mary Louise Parker, Helen Mirren, all aces in my book for this one. Okay, see, I already hit the button. I'm ordering the chicken fingers. I, early into this movie, knew it was not working for me the way that the other one was. And maybe it was just, like I said, surprise. Comedy for me, the joy is, and discovering the world and getting the joke. I already knew what this joke was coming in here. The fact that I'm seeing it being done again, it's grating. To me, this is all the same setup. What they've tried to do is change the relationship between Mary Louise Parker and Bruce Willis, which to me was the highlight of the film last time. I really liked her character. I really thought it was nice to have an outsider in this world of spies. It's an interesting dilemma that we now find out she wants to be a spy, and he wants to keep her normal slash suburban. That that's the conflict for these two. I didn't know that that's what they were going to do. It seemed to me at the end of the last film, they were all going to go off and be spies together. I didn't presume that they were going to settle down at Costco, but I think it's right for this movie. They needed to have somewhere to go with this relationship. This relationship needs to be key for the whole movie. And so I'm curious to see how this is going to develop. You know, Arnie, you said this is a action comedy, Stuart. I think you said that as well. I'm going to say they snuck something in on me that I wasn't expecting, that I actually went along with. They stuck in a genre that I actively avoid. This is a action rom-com. The relationship between Mary Louise Parker and Bruce Willis is really what this film is about. It's not about old people now. Now it's about this couple trying to get along. You know, I think of True Lies, where you have the housewife that wants to hear about her husband's exciting spy job and the spy who wants to live the boring life. It's not an original concept, but I actually like that they're exploring this relationship in a humorous way, in an action-filled way. It's something different. Again, not what I expected at all going into this film. Yeah, it's a little bit Mr. and Mrs. Smith, isn't it? They're not trying to kill each other, at least not until Catherine Zeta-Jones shows up. She's the one that really puts the spin on it. And all I'm going to cop to right now is I ordered the chicken fingers, but this is what I'm paying attention to. The rest of it, Malkovich, all of the yuck, yuck, yuck. The plot, let's talk about this plot. Now, I don't want to spend a lot of time on why. I don't know that I'll be rewarded for asking why. But you said a little bit about it, Arnie, and already I don't get what's going on here with Project Nightshade. Project Nightshade, as I understand it, is in the Cold War, the government was putting a bomb underneath the Kremlin just in case, and everybody thought it was nuclear. And they were doing it by having diplomats take in one piece at a time through diplomatic pouches. The WikiLeaks posted a document. At this point, all we know is WikiLeaks posted a document that specifically says Frank and Marvin were involved in this. And because the government, both the American and the British, who were in on this together, Together, don't want this possible assassination of millions to be cleared, they are trying to continue the cover-up through any means necessary. That's the plot until we get to the twist. Okay, wouldn't that necessitate the idea that Frank and Marvin would be court-martialed, that this would be public, that you would have media attention coming after them in order for the government to say, we gotta kill these guys? It was quite a jump to find out that some factions of the government want to bring them in for questioning and see what they know, and then another faction, played by our first enemy, Jack Horton, wants to kill them. And I never understand what Jack Horton wants in this movie. He's playing the Carl Urban character, right, from the first film? 
I thought he was playing the vice president. He's the first baddie. He's the one that we assume is behind it all that we'll find out is just a front for someone worse and older. My thing with him was I wasn't ever sure exactly who he worked for. You'll notice I said in my plot summary I called him agent. He obviously works for the government, but he has the authorization to torture. He's telling Bruce Willis that he's going to take Mary Louise Parker and just start cutting the skin off her feet and work all the way up her body and that he's been watching her in the bathtub which is even creepier and he's just ready to kill anyone on a moment's notice he's not just using this as an idle threat to get frank to talk he's ready to go so i don't know what the background is a little explanation as to hey why does the u.s government have hitmen because i mean that's against the geneva convention and whatnot with the recent discoveries of the nsa i don't think we could put anything above the u.s government right and i'm comfortable with that i want to put that out the government's bad, fine. That doesn't insult me. I don't view my patriotism as being that America is always right, and I think that, okay, if you want to have the idea, I think it's probably accurate. There are factions within our government that are fighting one another, that are bumping each other off, that have counter goals, and the fact that Jack Horton has a counter goal, but what does he want? We'll find out that he essentially is knowing that this is a sham. He knows that what they're leaking is false. Does he want Bruce Willis dead? Does he want to get the nuke? I don't know what he wants. They want to cover it up and retrieve their weapon. I think it's really that simple. The more you try to think about this, the further down the rabbit hole you'll go. So he believes it's real, or he knows that there is a real nuke, and he believes Bruce Willis really did it? Or he's just fine with Bruce Willis taking a fall, or someone taking a fall? It's not that Bruce Willis and John Malkovich did it. It's that they were even just escorts with people who did it. But because they are the named ones, they're the ones the press will go after. You gotta stem the flow. It's muddy, but whatever. It's a comedy, and I want to put it out there. My ultimate judgment of this movie will not be whether it makes sense. If I'm entertained by the action, and if I'm entertained and I'm laughing and I'm enjoying myself, that I don't understand what some of these characters are doing will be a minimal problem. But it is a problem. I mean, it's muddy. You gotta admit here, the plotting is not as good as it was last time. Keep in mind, Stuart, Horton hires Han, but Horton himself is working for a boss, right? There's that guy we get for one scene who kind of gives Horton the blank check to hire Han. Yeah, I didn't know what that was either. Right. But this scene could have made more impact because that role was intended to be Ernest Borgnine back from the last one. He was supposed to be in charge and Nightshade was so important that Borgnine, who idolized Frank, was putting out the hit on him. Well, yeah, I think that if you're bringing everyone back that was alive, that bringing back Borgnine made sense. Is Ernest Borgnine dead? He died right before the filming of this was to begin. He had signed, he had costume, everything was ready to go, and then he passed away last year. I didn't even know that. Well, that's a bummer. I'll admit that. I don't really know what's going on. I just know, okay, those are the bad guys. These are the good guys. When they start going around the world and they're going after the frog and this person and that, I'm barely hanging on there trying to follow this plot. And I'll go back to our James Bond retrospective. That was my assessment of most of the middle James Bonds. <laughs> the later Connerys, the Moors. I don't know what the hell he's doing going place to place, but I know these are the good guys, these are the bad guys. He's after some MacGuffin. The MacGuffin is constantly changing in a Bond film as it is in this film. They're going after the frog. They're going after Bailey. They're going after the bomb. It's convoluted, globe trotting, and it just did make me think of James Bond. 
And maybe the Roger Moore James Bonds you'll put as comedy as well, Stuart. But here, the comedy to me seems toned down in favor of a little bit of madcap, but a lot of action. The action is way amped up here. You get it right here from the safe house. Bruce Willis has been hauled in. There are some nice interrogators that are probably just going to slap him around and maybe drug him and get him to talk. And then here comes Jack Horton with a SWAT team who is not that patient. He's just going to take him right out here. And this one here is bigger than most anything that was in the last movie, I think. Oh, yeah. And as the guy who likes action films, I'm really enjoying this. The whole bravado, you know, 200 meters away, 100 meters away. Let me go. Let me free. They're coming come here and shoot. Like, I just like that kind of thing where everyone's whipping out their dicks and measuring them to see who has the biggest one, who could be the biggest badass. And you got Willis here in handcuffs having to take out all these guys. I like that they're not playing this as the old man. He's not using a cane to trip him up. He's just a badass. He's John McClane, really. He's using Pringles. I got to say, if you got to use product placement, this was a pretty good way to do it. I'll say that about the whole movie. The shop core at the beginning, the Pringles here, Papa John's later, it actually felt integrated into the plot. So kudos to them. I mean, I still noticed it. Yeah, exactly. If you got to do it, and I guess they do, then this was a good example of product placement. But keep in mind, I said at the end of the last podcast that I kind of liked these characters. I thought they could have a good adventure, but I didn't like the last movie. And Stuart, you put me on my guard going in. You're like, well, they're not going to change a thing. So I kind of went in arms crossed, eyes scowled. I was tired. It was the day after Comic-Con. I'm obligated (laughs) to see this movie. And I was just worried that it was going to be more of what I didn't like last time. And in these early scenes, I kind of felt like it might be. Because once again, we do have this Carl Urban stand-in. And we have all these young agents who are getting gunned down by Horton's people. And Bruce Willis is able to take them all out with a table leg and ingenuity. But you're right, Jacob. It's the tone, and it was during this scene that I started realizing they're not really playing the old card as much this time. He's just better. He is. He's John McClane. He's Bruce Willis in a Bruce Willis movie, which is why we go to see Bruce Willis movies. So I was actually very much on board with this. I was concerned because, as you mentioned, Stuart, Malkovich fakes his own death at the beginning of this. And... I'd only seen one trailer for this movie. It's the opening scene of the freaking movie of them in the shop co. And when Malkovich's car blows up and Frank's like, he's faked his own death a hundred times, but he's poking him and Frank starts to get a little emotional. I'm like, was Malkovich busy? Did Malkovich's contract only stipulate cameo? I didn't know if Malkovich was going to come back. That also put me a little on guard, a massive changing of that dynamic. I was happy when he steps through the wall to help Frank again. That actually got an applause from the elderly audience. They like this guy with the cowboy trench coat busting in. You mean his Jonah Hex outfit? Yes, there you go, (laughs) Jonah Hex. At least it went to some good use. They didn't have to pay for that, yeah. (laughs) But come on, you weren't fooled by this. And you've seen this before. You saw this last week. This is just like when they pretended to kill Morgan Freeman at the nursing home, and then he shows up later. This movie is the same movie as last time (laughs) with some minor erasing and a whole lot of convoluted getting to the next joke. I really feel like there are equivalents to every single beat that we had last time, only I don't get it as well. I'm not laughing as much, and I don't think that the charm is there. You keep referring to Jack Horton as the 
Carl Urban character. Maybe there's two Carl Urban characters, but I thought the Carl Urban character was the Asian assassin that they bring in from Hong Kong, who for some reason has a past history with Bruce Willis and is relishing the idea that he's going to be hired to take him out. Why do we need Jack Horton and Han Cho Bai? And Helen Murren. Come on, it is a sequel. We can't just go with one bad guy. We have to have six or seven. How many of these comic book movie sequels have you seen, Stuart? Come on, you should know this by now. But it's the U.S. government hiring both, right? That's not Hong Kong sending Han. The U.S. government is sending Han. MI6 is sending Helen Mirren. No, I get that. But what I'm saying is that there is a U.S. government agent going around shooting people, trying to get Bruce Willis, and then he hires Han to also go around and shoot Bruce Willis. This is redundancy. We only need one Carl Urban. We don't need two. And I think Han's the better one. I don't really get a sense about what Jack Horton wants, but if there's a highlight to Red 2, it's right here. Yeah, I mean, you said, why do we need him? Well, he's fucking awesome in this movie is why we need him. And I don't believe that Horton is going to be your badass who could take him out. We've seen Horton command a team of 16 men and Frank took them all out. Why do you find it redundant that a CIA bureaucrat would hire a hitman? I guess if you're looking at it strictly from screenwriting, that they're both after Frank is fulfilling the same thing, but one works for the other. It's your standard mastermind muscle dynamic here. It plays very well for me. It's Darth Sidious and Darth Maul. It's Cobra Commander and any of his strong people. Then they should have sent Han in here at the safe house. I just don't see why Horton tried to do it on his own. And then keeps popping up throughout the movie, continues to try to take the team out when he has hired the number one contract killer. Why not let that guy do his job? To me, it is redundant. And to me, there is a clearly more appealing character that I would have liked to have spent more time with. And we don't get enough of Han, but I like what we get. I mean, we do see Horton going on other missions. At one point, he walks out of a log cabin and he says he caught the person that did the leak. Really, this is a cleanup team. They're not just going after Moses and Boggs, but they're trying to clean up this WikiLeak, too. I don't get it. At one point, Horton's killing somebody else. You know, somebody suggests going public. I don't understand what the threat is. And so I wanted it to be cleaner. And Han's clean. He's just a hired killer. He had some history with Frank. And did you guys pick up on what it was? I couldn't figure out what Frank had done to piss him off in the past. It's not explicitly stated, but Frank had to betray Han, and Han lost his job. He was on the side of good spy who turned to Hitman after he was burned. Yeah, I was trying to pay attention. I finally got, I don't know, spy stuff happened. Again, a lot of muddy explanations where there should be clean laughs that everyone gets and has a chuckle over. I think there are missed opportunities in explaining these relationships, but they do make it fun when it's all about Bruce steals his plane. After that, I really get why Han has to be the one to take out Bruce. Yeah, you know what, Stuart? I think I was kind of in the boat that you are at the beginning of this film. I felt it was kind of clunky and wasn't really clicking for me, but as it goes along, it was the opposite of that first one. I really like the team coming together in red, and then it kind of loses its momentum here. It does have a slow, clunky start. I'm trying to figure out all these relationships, and then at one point you figure, it doesn't matter. Am I enjoying this? Am I enjoying the jokes? And I moved on past that point. I didn't have any drinks to help get me there, but I do agree that at the beginning here, with all these different characters coming in, it can get muddy. 
I actually thought it was a little bit streamlined, though, in the fact that it wasn't a, I'm going to go here and talk to this person, then going to go there and talk to that person. It felt a little bit cleaner. We had Helen Mirren pop up a little bit in the beginning, but it's now a team of three, really. It's Frank, Marvin, and Sarah, and these three are in it together, and those three are on the run from a number of different people. And yes, new characters are introduced as we go, but having these three familiar faces come back and be the heart of the story and Helen Mirren doesn't really become a part of it till almost the last act, keeps this more focused. Like she did the last movie. That was exactly the role that she played. It took her an hour to show up in red. It's pretty much the same time here. Poor Helen Mirren. I feel like she gets ripped off here. They have an interesting idea and they think about playing with it. She's hired to take out her friends. Do we think she's capable of doing it? I think it's a problem with the movie that I never believed that she would. But Stuart, you watched Red last week and that was her whole thing is that she was hired to kill her lover and she pulled a prank. She shot shot him but didn't kill him so he still lived i mean i don't think if i was buying into that first film and believing there's some kind of continuity here i don't know how much i could expect with these red films but i've already seen her lie to her government before about assassinating someone why would i believe her this time you don't think it would be more fun if Helen Mirren actually was trying to kill them, as opposed to just not being in the story, and then when she shows up, pulling bodies out of her fridge and giving them a cover? I feel like, yes, I want to see her play on the team. She already did that. Why not mix up the formula? Why are they so afraid to do anything different than they did last time? You guys are seeing a new movie this time. I'm saying a rehash that is not any way working as well. I wouldn't want to see Helen Mirren turn because Brits and Americans, we get along pretty well. We were in on this whole night shade mission together. You know who should have come back and tried to kill them all is Brian Cox. I think that that would have been the character, the Russian, who could have turned against his friends. Brian Cox is barely in this. He has a cameo. Is he working elsewhere? I don't know. They're bringing everybody back for the next X-Men film. Maybe he's over there. But I wouldn't have wanted to see the character you're picking as being the turncoat. Also, again, you want to talk about redundancy. If you had her and Han coming after them, who do you think's more deadly? The guy who can take a photograph and kill you in a blink or Helen Mirren? I think that Helen Mirren's one joke here is that she can kill anybody. Every time we see her, she's on the phone pouring sulfuric acid over a body that she just iced and melting it down in her tub. Or they're walking in and there's a room full of corpses and she's sweeping it up. She's not physically able to do the kind of stunt work it would take to sell this. They just make it this reoccurring joke. One that was already told numerous times last movie that she is a super badass. But when she finally gets that moment, moment they do some kind of car trick at the end come on it's just not believable i wanted to see her do something different here whoa whoa whoa, whoa. believable you're going for believable with this film no 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 i guess it's not any good Uh, how about that i'll be that blunt it's not satisfying at all to see what they throw at her i would rather see her have a new acting challenge but yeah going against her old team or something different having her have a reason to target her old team they needed to establish that they needed to make that credible and then it would have played I'm seeing a totally different movie than you, and I think I'm going to have to call you out because you've said many times you just haven't said it this show. So for any first-time listeners, you don't like action movies, right? It's not my thing. I'm not the action movie guy is what I literally say. To say I don't like them would be untrue. I am on record for liking many action movies. I like good action movies. I think what Helen Mirren gets to do here is tremendous. I think she has funny moments where she gets to go undercover pretending to be the queen. Tell me that's not a wonderful meta laugh. 
It wasn't a laugh for me, but that was because I was ordering another drink. And maybe you should have been focusing on the movie and you would have liked it a little better, but when the heavy metal music is playing and the car is doing 360 degree turns and she's firing out both windows, I'm like, who would have ever thought you'd see Helen Mirren kicking ass to heavy metal music, but I love it. No, that's the opposite. You have the opposite impulse of what I am. When they're playing that music, god-awful music. Love this music. <laughs> the guitar, and they're like, ah, 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 and yeah, like, that's just bad. It's just bad to see poor Helen Mirren have to do those silly stunts. That's not funny at all to me. I'm enjoying it. Again, I like that over the top. We're talking about comic books here. It's a very comic book moment, and I'm going with it. You know, this isn't a Daniel Craig, James Bond film. This is the Roger Moore of James Bond film. It's goofy, it's over the top, and I'm going along with that. I'm not getting upset that this car is spinning around while Helen Mirren takes everyone out with two handguns. That's what I would want in this film. And after the last movie, the single best stunt, the one fuck yeah moment of Red, is Bruce Willis getting out of that car that's doing the 890 degree turn. And here, they try twice to imitate that. Bruce Willis gets into a moving car that's skidding, and here, Helen Mirren's firing out of a car that's skidding. They really try for that. None are as cool as the last one, but the action in these movies is working for me much better than the last one, possibly because we don't have the action going against crazy-looking tourists that Marvin was going to get with his pig. Yeah, okay. I'm now getting what you're saying about me, and I'll agree with this much. I don't like comic book action. I don't like that kind of souped-up ridiculousness where it's all CGI and flipping and all of that. I like a James Bond or parkour or French connection, that kind of action. This is more like a Fast and the Furious, but with old people. That does doesn't interest me. No, I get nothing out of the car chases here. I get nothing out of the action. My anchor remains as the movie develops. What's Mary Louise Parker doing? How's Bruce Willis responding to the fact that he's dragging his normal wife into his former life? And not to provide too much realism to fictional characters, but man, I really think that Sarah needs to dump Frank and go off with Marvin. <laughs> I'm agreeing! I totally thought that too! <laughs> I mean, Sarah and Frank's relationship is completely dysfunctional. It is not going to end happy, because she only wants the excitement. She wants the chase. He's retired! She doesn't want to be with a retired dude, so she's going to take this old guy and try to make him continue to work because she's only happy if she's spinning in a car going 90 miles an hour at 720 degrees firing a Glock. Yeah, I mean, this is the girl that spent all her time reading these Harlequin romance novels, caught up in this fantasy world. Now she's finally got it, and, oh, they're shopping at Costco. I do love that they gave Mary Louise Parker something to do in this film. They made her a character. She's not locked up in some government bunker for half the film like that last one. She remains my identifying character. She's the one most like me, because obviously I'm not a spy out killing, or, or am I? <laughs> But Bruce Willis, I feel, is different here because his conflict last time was that I felt like he was a man neutered. It wasn't like he wanted to give up the spy game to live in that empty old house. He had nothing to do. He was miserable, too. That's why he started the phone conversation with her to begin with. I thought that what they told me at the end of the movie was that he finally found a romantic partner to have spy adventures. 
adventures with. It's kind of weird to me that he wants to just live in a house now and shop at Costco and get toilet paper and all of the stuff that they were getting in bulk. That didn't feel right. And I do feel like Frank is off in this movie. Is it Bruce Willis or is it the way the character's written? I'm not sure, but I don't really like him. I think it's maybe a little bit of both. I do like that the movie sells me that the reason he wants to do this is because of her. They give Marvin the line, the only thing that's ever scared Frank is losing Sarah. So it's all because of love for her that he wants to take the safe route so nothing happens to her. Yeah, it totally makes sense, at least for me, why he is the way he is at the beginning of this film. He's in love with this woman, and he doesn't want to see her shot in the face. He wants to protect her. I mean, that's a natural instinct, right? Do you buy that he has this romantic kryptonite when Catherine Zeta-Jones comes waltzing into the movie and tries to create a triangle here? I don't think I ever asked much about Frank's backstory. Again, this to me is a comedy. I think we've all agreed to that on some level. And yes, they were going to have this be a romantic comedy, about this couple quarreling, you gotta throw in the other woman or the other man. You gotta make it a triangle somehow. No, I agree. I love the idea. I just don't think that they have any chemistry here. I think Catherine Zeta-Jones is terrible in this film and should have been recast. I'll agree with you there. Like, I never buy that she's this Russian spy. I don't think she's very strong in this film. I've never liked Catherine Zeta-Jones in anything that I can think of. Ever. Alright, take it back. Mask of Zorro. That is it. I've always found her to be a repugnant personality on screen. She never can play the normal person. As a spy, I kind of bought her. She's looking very good, especially among these older people. She's sexy, but I don't believe she's Russian. I would believe that Bruce Willis would be into her. Michael Douglas is. That's why I think she's here. She's still a hot mama and she's in her mid-40s, but she's known to have a affinity for the older man. So they're taking her real-life romance and sort of transplanting here. I get conceptually why you put her here. I just think that the character is not well-written. I just think that she's not funny. Talk about no comedy, no laughs here at all with her. And that's too bad because this should be the movie. And they back away from it. There's a line early when Sarah observes her kiss Frank, she says, can't we just shoot her? I think I know what they're going to do. If Sarah is learning to be a spy, Marvin is training her how to kill somebody. In order to save her relationship, she's going to have to take out Catherine Zeta-Jones. Nothing else makes sense unless they do that. Well, we'll get there when they get there, but that isn't what they do at all. And I think it's to the detriment. I came into this movie knowing Catherine Zeta-Jones and Anthony Hopkins were the two big name additions to this. And based upon the pacing of last time, I figured that we would meet them as we went along. That said, I'm surprised how little Catherine Zeta-Jones actually gets to do here. She accomplishes virtually nothing other than to play a romantic foil. And wouldn't it have been a bit more interesting if maybe you'd combined the Han character with that and you'd gotten Lucy Liu or somebody, Ming-Na, and had them be the same person? Maybe. I do feel like there's a lot of characters here, and I agree. What do the Russians want here? What are they hoping to do? They want the nuke? They want to find the location of where this nuke is? Yes, they do. Right, right. So that's what they want, and that's what she should be doing here. I don't see her really involved in that plot much. The fact that she betrays Frank, it's kind of funny because it echoes an earlier fight that he had with Sarah. She wants to go out to eat. He tells her they can't ever go out to eat unless you make the food. You can't eat it. He breaks his own rule, and he gets drunk. 
drugged for it. All of that is very good. But after that, Catherine Zeta-Jones drops out of the movie until she, quote-unquote, comes back as one of their friends only to get killed. It's a badly written part. It's badly portrayed. And it's badly needed. And so that's what I ask. Do you think that this is working, that Bruce Willis is caught between these two women? You know what? Here's my focus, because I think this is where I really try to stop understanding the plot when we get to France, and there's the frog, and there's this key to a safety deposit box, and I have no idea what's going on at this point. Don't even go there. I agree. It's not worth it. Were they out of older actors to play the frog? Because the frog would have mattered so much if we'd known the actor. I'm guessing that someone dropped out and this was a last-minute replacement. David Thewlis, I've seen him before. He's a Brit. He's not even French. I don't know why you would miss an opportunity to put in Gerard Depardieu or just some noted Frenchman of the similar age. You know, I don't get why it's David Thewlis. And Jean Renault would have been perfect. Another former action hero. Yeah, no, great choice. Yeah. Here's what's working for me, though. Maybe Zeta-Jones isn't really pulling it off. But again, I'm going back to Mary Louise Parker, and I like how her character plays with it. They capture the frog, and they're about to all torture him. She does this whole act. She does the opposite of torture, where she seduces him. And I like that she, again, is given something to do in this film. She's spurned on by this love triangle now, where Frank's got googly eyes for this lady, so now she's gonna play it up and try to drive his jealousy. I'm going with the rom-com here. I'm going with this spy story as much, because I don't really understand all these interactions, but I'm enjoying this love story, which sounds really weird coming out of my mouth right now, but that's what I'm going with. All right, well, I'm interested to see if that's going to hold true as the movie develops. But yes, the frog is instrumental for only getting a key or something out of a lockbox. Basically, he's the placeholder until they figure out they need to go to London and bust Anthony Hopkins out of jail. Just like a Bond film is what I would say to that, though. Yes, a lot of going from point A, getting a clue at point A to take you to point B, and the frog gives them the clue that they need to go to Bailey. And at first, I misunderstood this. I thought they were saying the Bailey building. I was back at Remember, Remember, the 5th of November. There's a nuke at the Bailey. (laughs) If it had been V, it would have been there. But it's Anthony Hopkins. And before walking into the theater, I knew Anthony Hopkins was the villain. Why? Because Anthony Hopkins is in the movie. Anthony Hopkins' most famous role will always be Hannibal Lecter, and when you add him to an ensemble like this, yes, he's the baddie. That he was a baddie who pretended to be good, it might have fooled me if we weren't introduced to him like a crazy Hannibal Lecter locked up in this cell forever where it's almost impossible to get to him, and they have to go break in the door, and he's in isolated, solitary confinement. They're kind of parodying Lecter, right? Except, is he faking crazy this whole time? I was actually expecting more of a nod to Lecter here. But when we first get introduced to him, he does seem legitimately crazy until he tricks Victoria and Frank and locks them in the room. Everyone's playing off their popular image. As you pointed out already, Helen Mirren is doing a I'm the Queen bit to break in there. He's doing Hannibal Lecter as a nutter. Catherine Zeta-Jones is romancing the old dude. They're all kind of doing their shtick. I get it. I don't think anything is really funny about it. The sad part is when we finally do get to Anthony Hopkins, unlike Silence of the Lambs, where he seizes the movie and you can't take your eyes off of him, I don't care about this guy. Yeah, he's annoying. He's crazy. Is it a fake? Is it not? Who cares one way or the other? I 
took it as he was drugged up and he was having moments of lucidity just enough to make a plan that took him years and years to do and just enough to steal a phone. How he found out about WikiLeaks when he's in isolated confinement in that cell for 30 years, I don't know. But mostly his craziness was the result of extreme medication. And the longer he was out of the hospital, the less they were medicating and he became more and more lucid. Yeah, maybe. But does it matter one way or the other? I guess that's what I'm saying. Is there anything fascinating about him? I guess, like you said, Arnie, if I had ever assumed that he was a good guy or an ally or would join the team, I might have gone with it. But I saw the last movie. This is the Richard Dreyfus character. This is the guy that was locked up in isolation that is later going to be behind it all and pulling the strings. It's just really lazy writing here. But at least this time there isn't a fake out because in the last one we thought it was the vice president the whole time behind it all masterminding. I did. I, I thought it was Horton. That's exactly what I thought it was. Stuart, I think your problems with this, it's a problem with a lot of rote Hollywood movies. I mean, I see these formulas and everything. I don't see him just copying or replaying the beats from Red here. I always expect there to be a twist and the guy you thought was good is really going to be bad. That's a staple in these kind of films now. Yeah, and again, I just want to say that, sure, Friday the 13th, we know Jason's going to kill her. We know the people having sex are going to get killed. There is a formula to any sequel and if that really bothers you, you probably shouldn't watch any sequel. You're not listening to our show anyway. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you not recommend for any franchise ever. Sequels should, in some ways, reflect the movies from which they came from. Otherwise, why would you watch them? You want it to continue the story. It's not the knock on that. It is specifically that I think humor is the most hurt when you tell the same exact way again. It just isn't funny again. And that's what I'm judging the movie on. It's just not making me smile. I think the biggest fault of this film is when we have the meeting of the two lectors. We get Brian Cox and Anthony Hopkins on the screen together. I'm waiting for it. I'm waiting for some reference about how one did it better than the other. Something. And I didn't get it. I had forgotten that, but you're right. That would have been fun. It would have just a line. Fava bean. Something. Yes. Give me something. Yeah, you're right. Hell, get Gasparard Ulil to play the frog. <laughs> he might have been getting the catering for all we know. That man's not a working actor anymore. Hannibal rising my ass. <laughs> You're in the toilet. <laughs> I am in disagreement with you, Stuart, because the jokes here are muted. Only a couple are laugh-out-loud funny. Mostly, they're amusing enough, but you take the high-octane action that we're getting, we get the car chase, mixed in with the humor, Mary Elizabeth Parker is the one driving in the car chase because Marvin gives her the wheel, and I'm completely entertained, and I'm sitting there, and I'm realizing right about the time that Han is got this massive Gatlin gun that is killing just <laughs> tearing a van in half and I'm wondering how much ammunition it has. I'm sitting there realizing I have a smile on my face. Oh my god, am I actually going to recommend Red 2? And then Anthony Hopkins shows up and I'm like, yes, I love Anthony Hopkins. I love him in everything, even shit. But then this movie really falls apart on me. I've been able to string together because I wasn't eating chicken wings and drinking beer. I'm following the plot. I realize certain things are just said in passing. That actually makes the dialogue more real. I'm glad they're not sitting around explaining every goddamn thing. But this last third of the movie, once Anthony Hopkins is sprung and he's leading them to the bomb, but it's all a big double cross so he can get the bomb out of Russia to the Iranian embassy so he can blow up London? All of a sudden, it becomes way too plot-heavy. I'm supposed to care about this plot when it's been enough for me to see them go ABC, and wow, this last part does not hold up. 
terrible. Not only is it not funny, and I was measuring laughs not by my own, but by the people behind me who were audibly <laughs> early. It was 10-minute stretches sometimes once we get to Russia of dead silence. I bit the bullet. I was already $60 in. I'm like, fuck this. I'm ordering the waffle sundae. Get it to me now. <laughs> My thinking was, wow, this movie's been going on for two hours. Isn't it near the climax yet? And then I looked and realized (laughs) only 80 minutes had passed. I never got to look at my watch. It was in my pocket. There were enough beats that this film was hitting for me to keep me engaged. Again, Sarah acting as the guard at the Kremlin and making out with another guy. Again, I'm going back to that relationship stuff that I'm enjoying here. When they say they got to go into the Iranian embassy, it felt kind of over the top to me. So I was going along with that. You know, when Frank gives Sarah her own gun and it's monogrammed, it had enough beats for me to keep me engaged. I'm actually finding that I liked these characters. Characters. I was more engaged, more invested in them this time than when they were just these one note, hey, we're old people, but we're really tough from the last film. No, 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 no. And this is a crucial mistake for me. Sarah needs to kill someone. They planted that seed early, and they even told us who it was. Catherine Zeta-Jones has betrayed Bruce Willis. Now she's come back, and she's supposedly a friend. I think it would play better if she was one of the baddies. Maybe she was aligned with Hopkins. Maybe she's the only baddie. I don't know. But I believe that Sarah needs to be attacking Catherine Zeta-Jones. That she ends up going to the embassy and killing some man that's just trying to do his job. Wrong impulse. I really don't even understand that. And let me make sure I understand. There was no foreshadowing that we were going to end up at an Iranian embassy, right? There was nothing dropped that the Iranians were in any way involved in this plot. It just turns out that Anthony Hopkins had been working with the Iranians on his plot under the guise that he was going to sell them the bomb when in fact he was always planning to betray them too so he can blow up London. No, no, they're there. They are talking to the frog in Paris. He wants to talk about wine, and they're talking about buying weapons. They've always been trying to acquire a weapon. They planted it in there, but I don't blame you for missing it. It's convoluted. This is bad, guys. This is bad writing. And yeah, you mentioned that Sarah finally kills someone. She kills this Iranian. Now, because the Iranians are trying to buy a bomb, I just take it immediately that these are enemy army. We're supposed to think of all... All of them as enemy combatants. And so he's doing his job, his job of terror. These are institutionalized terrorists. But I thought for sure that this would be her wake-up call. She's like, oh my god, I just took a human life. This isn't fun and games anymore. That's what I expected her character arc to be, is to realize that there's a cost to being this action hero. That you're really killing people. You're really taking lives. It's not this Harlequin romance novel. And she does seem a little shaken for a couple minutes before before the movie just gets past it. (laughs) Not only that, but forgive me for bringing a little realism here, but I do have a problem with equating every Iranian with being a terrorist. These were people that worked at an embassy. They weren't all of the ones trying to buy the bomb here. And I do feel like it's just kind of a blanket statement that it's okay that she just killed one of them. That is someone that is cool for her to kill. No one's going to be upset that that's the life that she took. We'd hate for her to see pretty Catherine Zeta-Jones. This is all wrong. I just don't like the way it plays at all. It leaves a real bitter taste in my mouth that no waffle sundae can wash down. See, now you're having kind of moral problems like I had with the last one. I know, we're flipped on this one. I don't know, they were involved with buying a bomb. If you want to get into reality, why the hell did those Iranians just drop dead when old Anthony Hopkins barely lurched forward to 
poke him with a knife. Like, that was a disconnect for me. I'm like, <laughs> did he lace that with some drug that instantly killed him? He just casually walks over <laughs> and pokes him, and they drop dead. I'm like, that's really weird. Yeah, I believe he has a shoe bomb that he can drop a gas and kill everyone in a plane. That yes. was credible to me, but that he's going to try and do his old lector tricks here with knives and carving. No, you're not having any old friends for dinner. They're having you for dinner, Hopkins. You can't do this. There's even a little bit of a callback where it felt like he was doing a little conducting, just like the iconic scene of his breakout in Silence of the Lambs. Yeah, he neither needed to fully commit to that or totally ignore Silence of the Lambs, but there just wasn't enough Lecter here for it to work as a joke. I just don't like this character at all. No, he's not a sufficient baddie. He's not even Dreyfus good. And that's a shame coming from Hopkins. There's a scene early on when he first betrays the group where he's just holding a gun and we've seen Bruce Willis take out entire teams of young trained professionals and he kind of just like backs up and drops. I'm like, what is there about Hopkins that he's a credible threat? Just him alone holding a gun that Bruce Willis wouldn't just lurch at him and grab him and take him down. And let's not forget, Hopkins isn't even a combatant. He's a scientist. <laughs> well, he's like the inventor of every modern technology. They call him the Da Vinci of death. That if he's impelled to invent so many things that are destructive, he must have a killer instinct to him, right? I get what you're saying. He should be more consumed with the mechanics and less with how they're implemented. But I don't know. Anyone that only makes weapons of mass destruction should be considered a threat. No, I'm not saying that I don't believe he'd want to blow up London. I'm saying I don't think he'd be good with a knife. Oh, yeah. No, I agree. Yeah. That's not even to be debated. I mean, that just, it speaks for itself, really. When you see that scene, you're just like, all right, moving on, please. So do you like the action here? There's certainly a lot of it. A lot of double crosses and running around and Zeta Jones is killed and they're framed for it or something. And then Horton's killed or something. I don't know what's going on, but it's certainly busy. I like some of it. I like anything Han is doing. If Han is in the scene, I'm happy. Yeah, I'll give you that. When he has his fight with Bruce and kicks that fire hydrant and is later walking with a limp, all that stuff. We needed more of this guy. He was great. I don't want Red 3. I want Han 2. <laughs> right. And the rest of it, I'm just not going with it. It's just not exciting. We've had our big car chases. The Helen Mirren stuff is kind of good. I think this is when the heavy metal car scene is, right? Yes, it is. Oh, yes. And that is the one thing I like, because she's in the car with Han, and Han has this super low vehicle, and it's going under semi-trucks and things. That car stuff all works. So the Helen Mirren Han, love it. Everything else, not only do I not quite follow what's going on other than hop is trying to blow up London, but there's nothing even exciting about it. I know how it's going to end. I know that that bomb is going to end up on that plane and Hopkins is going to fly away and go boom. Could you be more obvious about it? So here's my question then, because that's what does happen. When did they put the bomb on the plane? Now, I know Marvin and Frank, they're in that helicopter. They crash land. So did they get to the airport before everyone else because of that crash landing? And that's when they planted it? I was really racking my brain trying to figure out when they put this bomb on the plane at the end. Afterwards, I'm like sitting there. He does it. We see it. It's in a metal box. And Bruce Willis walks in with the metal box while he's talking to Anthony Hopkins. And at some point, he walks out with the metal box. I don't know how. 
how the bomb got out of the box. That is some massive sleight of hand. I can only presume because Anthony Hopkins hears Frank before he sees him that Frank is doing some rustling at that point, and that's when he took it out of the box and put it into the cockpit or the microwave or wherever he hid it. Yeah, I was really just trying to rack my brain, trying to figure that out, because I knew that's what was going to happen. They didn't give a hint. They didn't drop a line. You know, I'm sitting there during the closing credits, not because I think there's going to be a post-credits scene to tease, you know, the next JLA movie from this, (laughs) but because I'm like, when did he put that on? I would have liked a line dropped. I knew that's what was going to happen. Just give me some kind of string to reality so I knew how he got that there instead of snapping his fingers and it being magic. And what's really funny is it's so obvious what's going to happen, and yet they don't explain to us how it happened ever. It's just... You knew this is going to happen, so just go with it. You can't. It's bad writing. Hopkins is the only one. It's this last line. I didn't see that coming. You're the only one, dude. Everyone knew how this was all going to resolve. That the bomb was going to go off. They couldn't stop it from ticking down. It was going to go off while he was safely flying over the ocean, and everyone in England is fine. Well, if you're going for the comedy, is there anything funnier than the Chiquita Banana fruit hat on your head, especially when you're a guy? Because that's what you get in the very last scene. It was funnier when he was dressed in drag in Moldova at the end of the last movie, but again, same joke. I thought it was funny seeing Sarah getting all crazy with the gun, shooting it up. Yeah, the man with the Chiquita hat, that's to be expected. Low-hanging fruit. Yeah, I, I don't think that that was... Literally. A, yeah, it, it, was, it wasn't a stroke of genius that they came up with that. I mean, when nothing's working, say a curse word or put a guy in a dress. I mean, these are desperate moves. Well, I'm only half in suspense. Jacob Stewart, do you recommend Red 2? Jacob. This is, Stewart, you've said, oh, this is almost exactly the same as Red. I kind of feel that way when I'm trying to come up with my recommend or not recommend. That one, I was really on the line. You know, the second half didn't really work for me. Once that joke got played up about old people coming back out of retirement was done, it kind of fell apart. Here, I'm going to recommend it. It's not a strong recommend. This isn't masterful cinema. But I enjoyed this one more than the first Red film. I enjoyed the characters more here. I liked the relationships. I liked that this was a romantic comedy. That was something that surprised me and kept me engaged. It, to me, I never took this plot too seriously. I don't think you're supposed to. Are there flaws? Obviously. There's things that don't make sense. But throughout the film, I was enjoying myself. I was chuckling. I was really enjoying most of the action going on. So yeah, I'm going to give this a mild recommend. Stuart. This was never in danger of getting a recommend for me. Starting with the concept, I didn't like the idea of making another one of these movies. You know what I wish? I wish they had just taken this cast and done a different concept. That's the kind of comedy sequel I like. I don't like it when they make little fuckers. I like it when they take the cast of Waiting for Guffman. Instead of making Waiting for Guffman 2, they make Best in Show. Just take Helen Mirren, Bruce Willis, John Malkovich, Mary Louise Parker. Just have them go do a different adventure where their age is in conflict with the turn of events. I think that would still be funny if it was an interesting turn of events. That it is still the spy game, it's just not enough. What is new here and what they are throwing at us, despite Han being cool, despite the increased budget, despite the fact that I've had a lot of food and alcohol, I just am not getting any entertainment out of this. I think it's a pretty mirthless affair. A dry comedy, a spent concept. There is no reason to see this movie, and please God help me, don't make red three so no not recommend 
You see, it sounds like when you say you don't even like the concept, you decided it was a not recommend before you ever sat yourself in the Lazy Boy recliner with your wings. It was. You're right. That is my bias. And I freely admit it. It is my bias going into comedy sequels. It had an uphill road, even though the funny thing is, I'm the one that liked the last movie. (laughs) And and Stuart, the funny thing is, I had the same reservations going into this. I'm like, why do we need a sequel to Red? It makes no sense. So I was pleasantly surprised. And I'm three for three is because I thought going in that I was the one with the strongest bias. I was the one who last week was angry at the message being sent by the movie and really just didn't want to be in that theater when I sat down. And yet I'm going to give this movie a weak recommend. Now, I'm going to say it's a very weak recommend. I had to sit there and do some like Hindu meditation on whether or not this was going to be a recommend or not recommend. (laughs) Cover the walls and calculations to see which way it went. Yes, exactly. Exactly. It was really on the fence because of the ending. Because by the time this movie ended, I was way ready for it to have ended. But I enjoyed that first hour. And so it was just right there teetering on the fence. And it's like almost I wanted to abstain. There's good things and there's bad things. But I have to make a choice on the arrow collar. And I just have to remember that I went in, arms crossed, eyes in a scowl, frown firmly on my face and looking around going... Yep, these are the people the last movie was made for. Let's just get this over with. And I had a lot of fun. And I'm going to credit that, first of all, to this new director, who I think achieves a better balance of comedy and action. I think it has less comedy than Galaxy Quest, but I thought that was also one of those comedies that works as a sci-fi adventure. Here, this is an action film that has comedy. This is in the vein of Lethal Weapon 2 and Lethal Weapon 3, whereas the last one was in the comedy of the whole nine yards. So... I see it as a tonal shift. And when I left, I heard people complaining that this one wasn't as funny as the last one. And they liked it when it was funnier. But for me, the joke of the last one didn't work. And the action of this one did. The ending, it falls all apart. But I gotta make a call, and the hour that's good outweighs the half hour that's bad. The most weak of recommends, but a recommend. I think what's significant, however recommend or not recommend, what's significant that I'm taking away from you guys is, you think this franchise has stepped it up. It's gotten better. And to me, clearly, it has not. By the smallest of degrees. Okay, but still, a degree. To me, there's no way I ever could think such a thing. It begs the question, now that you guys are impressed and I'm not, Red 3, do you want it? I've already made my case. No, I still don't want Red 3. (laughs) I would still be skeptical. And the fact that Red 1 and Red 2 came from the same writers, and those writers are the ones that they've hired already, they've got their paycheck, whether or not it's made, to write a script for Red 3. I still like these characters, which I liked at the end of the last one. At the end of watching Red 1, I was optimistic that Red 2 could be good. I give Red 2 a mild recommend, but I really don't know that I want Red 3. I would go see it, we would review it, but (laughs) I don't want any more Red. I don't. I think that it's played out. What I want to do is I want to look up the oeuvre of Byung Hung Lee and see his films. Because he rocks a storm shadow in two lackluster Joe films. And he's what tipped the teeter-totter over to the Green Arrow side is his performance. He's awesome. He's badass. And he's just funny, too. So I don't want more Bruce Willis. I certainly don't want more John Malkovich. And honestly, Mary Louise Parker by the end was kind of grating on me. Could she wipe that smirk off her goddamn face for a minute? She's cute. I like her. But... At times, it's not appropriate to have that big grin on your face. But no, it's better dead than Red 3. 
Yeah, I'm with you on that. I think it was a one-joke premise. It was one that was effectively used in my taste last time and does not need a repeat. And if they did make a Red 3, all I ask is that they really change it up. And I know they're not going to do this, but get rid of Frank. Make a spinoff or something. But I just really don't feel like Bruce Willis is good for this movie and where they need to take this franchise should it continue. I just want to give Bruce Willis congratulations, because, sir, you've been in a lot of movies this year. We reviewed Die Hard. We reviewed G.I. Joe. Here we are with Red. You finally get a green arrow from me. I actually think I like Good Day to Die Hard more than this. Ugh. No. 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 I don't know how you could say that. Well, they did go to Chernobyl. I don't know. I have to think about it. (laughs) But... In addition to being the end of Red, this is the end of our Hitman retrospective. So it's been a long, weird, winding road going from the losers to Beaver Vendetta to Red. But looking back, guys, I mean, how would you rank the series? I think that there was one truly great movie, and that's V for Vendetta. That's the one that, in seeing it a second time and having years of reflection, I think is really solid. And it succeeds as both being comic booky and a really serious movie with gravitas. I think that's the one to really hold up. History of Violence I like. I wouldn't call it my favorite Cronenberg, but I think it demonstrates his skill, and it was interesting. It had lots of interesting ideas and twists on genre. As it got more comic booky, I was less into it. Red, I thought, was cute. Red 2, I did did not. Losers was my least favorite of the series. The surprise for me was Road to Perdition. I really thought I was going to like that movie, and I did like aspects of it, but it left me cold. So, all in all, I wouldn't say that this has been a great series for me, but I really enjoyed exploring the first three. The last three, eh, I could take or leave. Yeah, you know what? I'm going to flip my favorite two from yours, Stuart. I'm going to go with History of Violence. That one I had never seen before. I really enjoyed that one. V... Good film. There's always a distance from me from that film, though, where I recognize it's a good film. Uh, It's not one I could totally get into, but I recommend. I enjoyed it. Yeah, losers, less said the better. That is the loser of the bunch. And, you know, Road to Perdition, I think that one was disappointing. I had higher expectations because of the actors, because it was Academy Award nominated. I went in expecting to like that one and was really disappointed. Oddly enough, it's the one that I feel would have been better if they had made it more comic booky. I think that's what we both said during that one. We like Jude Law there, but yeah. Interesting retrospective. A big spectrum here with this series. Yeah, I definitely liked that we had a variety of genres, even though they're all works based on DC Comics. For me, it's so hard to determine whether or not I prefer History of Violence or V for Vendetta. Two totally different movies. Two movies I love dearly. Road to Perdition, a movie I really, really like as well. Red 2 eked by, and the losers, boy, the losers, they indeed are losers. I actually was in a panel and had a chance where I could have asked Chris Evans a question, and Zoe Saldana was there too. And do you know how hard it was to bite my tongue and not ask about the losers? (laughs) (laughs) But you didn't have a question. You wanted an explanation, if not an outright apology. (laughs) Although they're not the ones that blame. It should be said, if it's Saldana and Chris Evans, they did their job. Now, if it were Jason Patrick, (laughs) I would have gone to the mat. Unfortunately, Idris Elba didn't show up at Comic-Con either. He was supposed to for Thor. If the three of them had been together, my hand would have been in the air. (laughs) But that is the end of this retrospective, and we are actually not going to be doing a retrospective for a little while. As we've said before, we are going to just be appending previous retrospectives starting next week with The Wolverine. Yeah, because we haven't had enough comic book superhero movies. Well, and that's not the end of them. (laughs) 
No, I know. We're getting Kick-Ass 2 right afterwards, but I'm a little more hopeful to that one, because it's got comedy, and I really did like that first one. I don't know. Maybe it'll be Red 2 all over again. It's going to put my theory to the test. Is Kick-Ass an action movie? Is it a comedy? Can comedies have good sequels? Yet to be determined as we get to those. And speaking of comedies and sequels, we're also doing our first comedy retrospective series. It's unfortunately so quick, we are starting our fall donation series. It seems like we just ended our summer donation series. I can't believe it. It hasn't even been 30 days. And yeah, we're already into another donation series. But at least it's one that we all wanted to see. Yeah, and I want to just stress to the listeners, it's not that we're just doing donation series this fast and furious because we wanted to. We normally want to do it in September, but we really wanted to cover The World's End. And that's the third film in the Blood and Ice Cream trilogy from Simon Pegg, Nick Frost, and Edgar Wright. And they moved that release. It was supposed to be October, and we had it on the calendar, and we were going to do our normal set schedule, but because they moved it, we decided we're going to move our donation series, too. We're going to start it up. The first show of our donation series, Shaun of the Dead, is going to be released on August 17th, so you can find out all the details on how to donate by clicking the banner at the top of nowplayingpodcast.com. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah, we're not trying to build people. The original plan is to have more space, but let's face it, World War Z made the spring donation go long, and moving up World's End made the fall start early. So, yeah, we're already back in donation mode. I hope you guys can find it. You're going to have a little time to put it together. It's going to be a fun one. Shaun of the Dead, Hot Fuzz, The World's End, plus two non-Edgar Wright-directed comedies with Frost and Peg, Paul, and Attack the Block. Yeah, and for the gold-level donors, Psycho. What more needs to be said? Hitchcock. That's going to be a fun one. I can't wait to get to that one. All things to look forward to if maybe Wolverine isn't totally doing it for me. Good stuff in our future. And then we will actually resume after we finish Kick-Ass 2. Our next retrospective series starts at the end of August with Riddick in Pitch Black. I know, Arnie, you had to do a Vin Diesel. We really, really tried to do Fast and the Furious, the confluence of moving release dates. We weren't able to do it, but you're going to get your Vin Diesel on with Riddick, Chronicles of Riddick, and Pitch Black. Hey, more Carl Urban. (laughs) (laughs) Is it really? Yeah, all we need is Idris Elba now. So, Jacob Stewart, thank you for joining me. We'll be back next week. And remember, what happens in the podcast stays in the podcast. Pinball, this is Chopper 3. Prepare for extraction. My favorite part was when we were completely on fire, but the shootout, that was good times. Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing, and we hope you've enjoyed the show. Now I get to walk away. We all would have walked rogue. Come to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week as we review another DC Hitman movie. A more perfect stage could not be asked for. In the archives at NowPlayingPodcast.com, you can hear reviews of hundreds of comic book movies, such as all the Batman and Superman films, the Marvel Avengers films, Spider-Man, Catwoman, Howard the Duck, Man-Thing, Kick-Ass, X-Men, and many more. You can also hear reviews of non-comic-based films, including Star Trek, Predator, James Bond, Rambo, Rocky, and more. Find hundreds of movie review podcasts at NowPlayingPodcast.com. It's like giving a handgun to a six-year-old, Wade. You don't know how it's going to end, but you're pretty sure it's going to make the papers. While at NowPlayingPodcast.com, be sure to join our forums, where you can discuss this review with other listeners. 
You can also follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where the hosts post new episode announcements and written movie reviews. The links to our social media pages can be found at nowplayingpodcast.com. I need you. They're coming. I can feel it. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. How much do you want? $200. Okay. Good deal. Could I have had more? You'll never know. You can also help Now Playing by leaving a five-star review on iTunes. A link to Now Playing's iTunes listing can be found at nowplayingpodcast.com. Even though I do not know you, I love you. With all my heart, I love you. Now Playing's DC Hitmen Retrospective series is edited by Dylan, Jeff, and Arnie. This is a nice town. We have nice people here. We take care of our nice people. You understand me? Now Playing credit narration by Brock. We heard his voice. The man with the voice, the man with the throat. The guy's got a throat. Come on. Now Playing is not affiliated with the producers of these motion pictures. All movies discussed on Now Playing are the intellectual property of their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. So it's like that, huh? Yeah. It's like that. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. As the authenticity of this document cannot be verified, it could be an elaborate forgery created by the terrorist as easily as it could be the deranged fantasy of a former party member who resigned for psychological reasons. Any discussion of this document or its contents will be regarded at the very least as an act of sedition, if not a willful act of treason. Now playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2013, all rights reserved, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. Frank, how many times have I told you, you cannot trust the system? I told you, when you're in the system, they switch the flip, and you're done. You put me on my guard going in. You're like, well, they're not going to change a thing. And so I kind of went in like, oh, God. Did I sound like Gargamel? <laughs> you did, actually, yes. <laughs> well, I am truly sorry for that. I, I never want to sound like Gargamel. You must have just I, walked I, out of Smurfs 2 or something. <laughs> if I was in there, I did just walk out. <laughs> well, you didn't order more cheese wings? <laughs> There's not enough beer in the bar. the whole bottle, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm going to shit in the seat. <laughs> Nightshade or Nightwing? Nightshade. Nightwing is another okay. DC character. Okay. He's at some point invited into the plane to basically collect Sarah. He's being given I don't yeah, I don't I don't really remember. There was a lot of alcohol at this point. I don't really know. I'll be honest. I don't know. I can't tell you. And and yeah, Sarah no, Jessica, no. not Sarah Jessica Parker. What's her name? <laughs> Mary <laughs> Louise Parker. Parker. Sarah Jessica Parker, leave her on the plane. <laughs> Oh, no more Sex in the City retrospectives. Although, there's still going to be massive fallout, right? I mean, it is still a nuclear bomb, Christ. No, it is not. It's, uh, they specifically state, yeah, just cut that line, because uh, it's it's red mercury, no fallout. Yeah, just like, didn't you see G.I. Joe 2 Retaliation? They had a bomb there with no fallout. <laughs> yeah, whatever. He's a genius, this Hopkins, inventing his red mercury. Though, isn't mercury really poisonous? Isn't that, like, bad stuff, too? Well, that's silver mercury. 
It was the whole plot of Star Trek, but I don't know. No, that was Red Matter. <laughs> Can't you guys keep it straight? Red Matter, Red Mercury, and Mercury. <laughs> no, I cannot keep it straight. 